Laura Hannah Pichelli, and you'll be able to see some of the best Pichellis. So, yes. May 22nd, 2022, because we're all North Carolina. And I want to look today at the Chaitanya Chai Town Winter, which is not something we usually look at on a Sunday. But I thought that this was important. And actually, this verse, although it's in the Chaitanya Chai Town Winter, it's both in the Bhakti Yusami Descendu. And the reason I feel it's important is that if we want to attain the perfection of life, we need to know something about who we are. So one of the perhaps most popular books that we sell is called The Science of Self-Realization. Yeah? It's not called The Science of Self-Creation. Or Self-Development. It's called the science of self-realization, finding ourselves. So throughout the Vedic literature, anyone who's a follower of the Vedic literature, it doesn't matter whether they're worshiping Krishna or some other aspect of the Vedas, the focus is always on removing ignorance and revealing the self. Never adding something or creating something, but finding that which is always there. Yeah? And that's what we want, isn't it? We want to find something that's authentic. Now, in this day and age, a lot of people try to do that on the bodily platform, which is one reason why there's such an interest in genetic testing. Big thing, right? You want, I want to find out who I am originally. So I, you know, look back generations and generations and, you know, what part of India or Africa or China or Europe did my ancestors come from? Uh, of course, those tests are very flawed and sometimes people find out that their great-grandfather was unfaithful and everything's a mess. But the concept is there, yes? That if I go back, I will find what is the original me, yeah? Oh. So why do we want to do that? Because we have some sort of innate sense that whatever I am doesn't have a beginning. It's just there. It may need to be awakened, it may need to be realized, it may need to be understood, but it's something that's there. So this fact is very much, very nicely brought out by the founder of our Sampradaya. Sampradaya means a particular school of understanding the Vedas. Just like in ordinary life, there's different schools where you can learn mathematics. You can learn from you know, UNC Chapel Hill or from Duke or from NC State or North Carolina Central. There's all these universities, they all have a department in mathematics, but they may teach you a little differently in different schools, but it's still mathematics. So the founder of our particular school is Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who we understand to be an incarnation of Krishna. So he is teaching what is the original self. And it's interesting, the same verse that is quoted by the Lord in this biography, Chaitanya Charitamrita, is also quoted by one of his leading disciples, Srila Rupa Goswami. And Rupa Goswami is also one of the 
original teachers or acharyas in our particular school following the Vedic literature. So let's look at this first, which is CC Major 2105. When transcendental devotional service by which love for Krishna is attained is executed by the senses, it is called sadhana bhakti, or the regulated discharge of devotional service. Such devotion eternally exists within the heart of every living entity. The awakening of this eternal devotion is the potentiality of devotional service in practice. Now, I'd like to emphasize for those of you who are more familiar with our tradition, that Rupa Goswami here is talking, as is fairly clear from this verse, about the practice of devotional service. In fact, as we know, this is from Bhagavad Gita, this is in one two two. So, in section one two, he is talking about the practice of devotional service, not the perfection, but the practice. And this is the very beginning, it's the second verse in that section. So some people have said to me recently, oh, Rima, this is about the perfected devotee. But that cannot be true. That's not the context. It's like, okay, now I'm going to talk about the practicing devotee. So we keep that in mind. Shila Prabhupada's purport, this verse is found in the Bhakti Vasanri to Sindhu 1, 2, 2. Because living entities are minute atomic parts and parcels of the Lord, devotional service is already present within them in a dormant condition. So why was Papa's logic here? Why is devotional service present in a dormant condition? Because we are part of the Lord. And dormant means? Sleeping. Literally, in French, means sleeping. Devotional service begins with Shravanam Kirtan on hearing and chanting. When a man is sleeping, he can be awakened by sound vibration. Therefore, every conditioned soul should be given the chance to hear the Hare Krishna mantra chanted by a pure Vaishnava. One who hears the Hare Krishna mantra thus vibrated is awakened to spiritual consciousness or Krishna consciousness. In this way, one's mind gradually becomes purified as stated by Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Chaito Jarvana Marjana. Now, Chaito means one's consciousness, and we know what Marjana, what um, Darpana means a mirror. Marjana is to clean. I'm sure we've all seen dirty mirrors. Yeah? So I know some people somehow when they brush their teeth and put on their D-Log, they can't do it without making a mess on their mirror. Yeah? Maybe some of you have shared a bathroom with some people. And so if you use the bathroom after them, you know, we have to take some cloth and, and clean it. Yeah? So if a mirror is very dirty, you cannot see your reflection. So cleaning the mirror does not create the person whose vision is seen there. It reveals it. In the same way, when you wake up, you don't create yourself. You just come back to a memory. When the mind is purified, the senses are also purified. Instead of using the senses for sense gratification, the awakened devotee employs the senses in the transcendental loving service of the Lord 
This is the process by which one above the Krishna is written. I'll read this verse again. Kirti Sadhya Bhavet Sadhya Bhavasa Sadhanabhya Nidja Siddhasya Bhavasya Prakatyam Riti Sadhya When transcendental devotional service by which love for Krishna is attained is executed by the senses, it is called Sadhana Bhakti or the regulated discharge of devotional service. Such devotion eternally exists within the heart of every living entity. The awakening of this eternal devotion is the potentiality of devotional service and practice. Now I just also want to read uh, two verses later, has no purport, 107. But this is a, a very well-known verse, also spoken by Lord Chaitanya. Nitya Siddha Krishna Prema Sadja Kavunai Shravanami Shiva Chitya Kadae Udhai. So Udai means what in Bengali? To rise. Again, we're looking at getting up, awakening. Right? When you get up, you don't create yourself. <laughs> it's not, it's not that, wake, that arising or waking up is creating something, but it's understanding who you are. Prabhupada's translation. Pure love for Krishna is eternally established in the hearts of living entities. It is not something to be gained from another source. It is not something to be gained from another source. When the heart is purified by hearing and chanting, this love naturally awakens. So in their commentaries to the first verse that we read, from Bhakti Rasami to Sindhu 122, other great uh, teachers at the beginning of our line, Shri Goswami, a little later, Krishna Chakrabhati Thakur, make the point that if love of God was artificial, or if it was some kind of external attainment, then it could not be perfection. Because perfection is uncovering that which is always real. And I think this is just reasonable. Again, this idea of I'm going to go back and find my origins. What's, what's the real? What's the eternal? And Krishna, of course, makes this point in the Bhagavad Gita. Something that's temporary... It's not ultimately real, yes? The only thing that's real is something that's eternal. Of course, we don't say this material world is false. We say it's temporary. But material energy is not temporary. So the various forms in this world are temporary. This table, before it was a table, it was a tree. Before it was a tree, it was seed. It was sunlight, a seed, water, earth minerals. Right? And then after it ceases to be a table, it will become dirt. Right? Or if we burn it, we'll release the little bit of sunlight in the form of human light. We'll release the earth minerals in the form of smoke. Right? And we'll release whatever water remains in the form of water vapor. So these energies are eternal. Einstein said this, right? Matter is never created or destroyed. So that is also eternal. But anything that is that is temporary, it's not real. The table is not, this is not a table. Temporarily we can use it as a table. But that's not its eternal identity. You follow? Yeah? It's temporarily assumed this form. And this word sat, 
The word sat, which means eternal, and it also means true, and it also means good. So all those are combined. Something, and by eternality we mean no beginning and no end. We don't mean it, has a be- it had a beginning, but now it doesn't end. But it's always there. It's always the reality. So we have some sense, even just reasonably, without looking at scripture, that something that's real is always real. It's not an artifice. We have this understanding in our relationships. Well, who are you really? Or are you pretending to be something that you're not? Yes? We have the uh, saying, con man, that means a confidence a person who they, they get your confidence to trick you and how do they get your confidence by pretending to be something that they're not yeah they're actually a thief but they pretend that they're friendly and helpful or nowadays with the internet you know there's some 40 year old guy somewhere in the world pretending to be a 20 year old girl and taking your money. Yes, this happened all about the same. So they're they're pretending to be something that they're not. Yes, and we, we know intrinsically that that is not real. Real is something that is always what it is. So what is it that the process of bhakti yoga does? As nicely explained here, the process of bhakti yoga takes us from the covering to the uncovering. It takes us from the darkness to the light. And darkness is a kind of covering, isn't it? Where things appear different than what they are. So for a long time, my oldest son lived in Hawaii, and I would like to take a walk early in the morning before it would get hot. And the configuration of the mailboxes and the streetlights made it look like there were three people standing down at the end of the street. And it was so... It looked really like it was three people. And every time I took my walk, although I knew that's just the street lamps, telephone poles and the street lights and the mailboxes, it was always, are there three people standing there at five five in the morning? Because the darkness makes things appear different than what they are. And as soon as the sun would come up, we'd see, oh, it's a telephone pole and a couple mailboxes there. So the jiva who doesn't know, the person who doesn't know that they're full of love, they're in darkness. They're covered by darkness. Now the question always arises that why would a soul that's full of love for God be covered by darkness? This is like the question. So I'm really going to disappoint all of you. This question is asked in the Bhagavatam. It's asked in the third canto by Vidura. He says, what is it that makes the pure soul who's full of love, that's what we were just reading, right? The soul is full of love for God. What makes this soul covered in consciousness? So the answer given by Maitreya is, no, no. It's just like seeing your head cut off in a dream. That's it. That's his answer. Vidura says, how does the pure soul get covered by darkness? No, no. It's just like having your head cut off in a dream. That's it. Goes on to other things. 
So we have these people debating, you know, for years. How did we get covered by darkness? Uh, later in the 11th canto, in chapter 11, Krishna himself is speaking to Uddhava, and he says the same thing in a little bit more detail. He says there's actually no meaning to being conditioned or liberated. He said the soul is always pure. The concept of being conditioned is just it's just a dream. Might be Which very much corresponds to what we're reading here from Lord Chaitanya. That self-realization means an awakening. An awakening from a dream. Of course, Shri Prabhupada writes in, the, in a Bhagavad Gita purport. He says that this is okay. He says that the Lord understands how each of us came to this dream state, this state of illusion, this state of being covered by darkness. And when Prabhupada was asked about it, he would often respond, "When there's a fire in a house, you just get out." Later, you figure out what caused the fire. Now, if there's some big fire and the firefighters come to put out the fire, so you may, may not know, but there are also firefighters who specialize in discerning whether or not a fire was accidental or intentional. Like, that's very important because if it was intentional, then the insurance doesn't cover it and then it's a crime and so forth, right? So with every single fire, there's certain firefighters who figure out where did the fire start, how did the fire start. Do you think they do that while the fire is blazing? No. After they put out the fire, they go and see how did the fire start. So when we are in darkness, we cannot understand how we got into darkness. It's like when you're sleeping, can you understand how you fell asleep? You have to wake up, yes? Or even where you're sleeping. When you're sleeping, you don't even know where you're sleeping. Am I correct? And scientists who study sleep, they don't study it by sleeping. They study it by watching other sleeping people. They have to be awake. And if a person who's awake tries to explain to a sleeping person what is the sleeping state, will that work? No. So when a person awakens, then they can understand how they got into darkness. But trying to understand how you get into darkness in a dreaming state while you're dreaming is not very possible. Which is why we're advised, don't debate this question. It's simply confusing. What I've seen is that those who are actually awakened and who understand the answer, when they try to explain it, we just go, what? Huh? It's like seeing your head cut off in a dream. Like, what can answer that? It doesn't answer the question. You know, we just, we don't understand it as an answer. So that, that particular question is one for which patience is required. Does this make sense to everybody? Or, you know, when you're in kindergarten, you're not going to understand doctoral physics equations. And it doesn't matter if you insist on it and have a tantrum about it. It just isn't going to work. So this point about how a, a being that is of the same quality of the Lord and filled with love 
gets covered by darkness in a dreaming state is, again, not something that's really understandable by us while we're in that darkness. We will filter the answer through our darkness and come up with something peculiar. And then people fight about that, and then they never get out of it. Can you imagine people in the middle of a fire having a huge fight about how the fire started? Imagine that. You know, that everybody would just simply burn. So what needs to happen instead is you just need to go from the darkness to the light. You need to go from the fire to the fresh air. It's really that simple. And we, the soul, are also described as the marginal energy of the Lord. It's called tatastra. It's something like the sand that's right next to the ocean that is sometimes dry and sometimes wet, depending on the tides. So being a very small part of the Lord, if we are under the shelter of darkness, we don't understand ourselves. And if we come into the light, we understand ourselves. Therefore, there's the Vedic aphorism, come out of the darkness into the light. So the system of bhakti yoga is simply getting us to come into the light. Or the other analogy is it's getting us to clean this mirror. That's what it's doing. And when we come into the light, we come into the Lord's internal energy, which then reveals who we are. Is everybody following? Yes? So if I'm under the Lord's illusory energy, I can't see who I am. And if I move away from that and I move into the light, I can see who I am. And we could say that the light gives me my vision of myself. Would that be an appropriate way to speak? The light bestows upon me my identity. Now that doesn't mean it wasn't there before and that it gave it to me, but it means it shows it to me and without coming into the light, I cannot see it. So the essential element of who I am is I'm a spiritual being that is full of love for God. Now people talk about this kind of thing, I suppose a little sentimentally, perhaps, you know, everything is ultimately love, but that's true. I mean, people may think of it in terms of, you know, a cute little kitten or something, but it's actually the fact that the essence of everything is love. And love is a kind of strange thing. I hope all of you have loved somebody in your life. At least your mother or your father or a sibling. Or I hope you've loved somebody. Some people have never loved anybody. So I hope each of you have at least loved somebody or some, some living being. And you know that love, it's very peculiar. Love covers the faults of the other person, isn't it? When you love somebody... Either you don't see their faults or you reinterpret their faults as actually good qualities. You always want to be with that person. You want to do things with that person. You want to share things with that person. Yes, you find that person fascinating. Or not a person could be an animal, but you find that other living being fascinating. Yes? And you're willing to do almost anything 
for the happiness of that other being. Be willing to change your behavior, your mood, your activities, in order to please that other being that you love. And again, something maybe a dog or a hamster. No, I mean, <laughs> but if somebody feels this kind of, of love, yeah? So the fact that we are loving someone or some being in this world and that such a thing is nearly universal is also evidence that that is who we are. And such a thing is not necessary just for survival. You know, if Darwin was right and just some primordial soup, you know, if some cells popped out of matter spontaneously and eventually turned into, you know, orangutans and coconut trees and giraffes and people. Uh, if that's all we were was matter, then why would we have this propensity to love? Where, where would it come from? We don't see rocks loving anybody. You know, we don't see just gross matter, soil and rocks. It's not exhibiting this loving propensity. But we see that with the nature of a living being. But let's go a little bit beyond that. So if our essential nature is to love, and by doing bhakti yoga we come into the light and we see that that's what we are, Love also has some specificity. Even if I may feel love for everybody in one sense, I have a specific type of loving relationship with specific individuals. Yes? And I have very specific ways in which I demonstrate that. And that's what we mean by a person. You know, those of you who are, and I think most of you in this category, those of you who are very familiar with the Hare Krishna movement, we're very much emphasize the fact that we're personalists as opposed to impersonalists. So there's a group of spiritualists that say, well, yes, we're full of bliss, and you could sort of kind of-ish say it's love, but we're all the same. You can't distinguish between one or another. And they say, when we're covered, we think we're different. But when we're uncovered, we see that we're not at all different. We're all the same. My thoughts, your thoughts, my desires, your desires. There's no meaning to that anymore. And therefore, there cannot be any love. Love means I love you, you love me. We have different ways of showing love. That's what it means. If all our personality and our identity is erased, then I cannot have love. And we would argue that without love there cannot really be bliss. I mean, there's a certain kind of happiness. You're all by yourself. You know, maybe people are doing that on this hot Sunday, floating in some lake somewhere. You know, ah, bliss. You know, but that, that is really just a relief, isn't it? You know, at the end of a long day, you sit in your chair and you're like, Whoa. But that, that's not active bliss, is it? And where do we find the most bliss? It's in love. 
Again, think of someone in your life that you love or have loved. I mean, it just, it, it makes the whole world seem alive. Yes? So many ordinary love songs like that. You know, now that I love you, everything's, I think the Beatles had some songs like that. You know, everything's, well, I forget what the words were. But everything's wonderful in the world. And if I don't see the person that I love, then everything's empty. There was a song like that I remember, My World is Empty Without You, Dave. So this is the the aspect of love and an impersonalism that can't exist. And therefore, the amount of bliss that's possible in spiritual realization without personality is just like relaxing in your comfortable chair after a hard day of work. How long do you want to sit there doing nothing? Yeah, five minutes, ten minutes, maybe half an hour. But after that, it's boring. Yes? It's not active bliss. So to have active bliss, we need to be individuals. And in order for us to be full of love of Godhead, we have to understand that God is a person and I am a person. So if love of God is eternally, without beginning, part of each of us as a spiritual being, then personality also must be eternally, without beginning, who we are. Does that all make logical sense? And what do we mean by personality? Personality means I like some things and I don't like other things. Yeah? Does that mean I have an opinion? I have a certain taste. A certain food I like, certain food I don't like. Certain colors I like, certain colors I don't like. The room I'm in now, when I moved into it, all the walls were kind of a bright blue. And they had just, they'd been painted not that long ago. The paint job was fine. And I remember my granddaughter saying to me, don't you want to repaint the walls? And I said, why? You know, there's nothing wrong with this paint. It's fairly new paint. Why take the time and energy and money to repaint it? And she said, do you like the color? And I said, no. She said, that you should repaint it. Thank you that she gave me that advice. Because once you move in, painting is, is a little bit more difficult. So we have, certain, we have certain colors we like on our walls, certain colors we like in our clothes, certain furniture that we like. I mean, if you see the wide variety of things available for sale, amazing, isn't it? You know, in any shop, the variety of styles of clothes, colors of clothes, styles of shoes, colors of shoes, types of food. Yes? Incredible variety. And why is that? Because we're persons. And we like something and we don't like something else. We have certain ways that are enjoyable to us and certain things that are not enjoyable to us. And what's enjoyable to you is not going to be exactly the same thing as what's enjoyable to me. And even if two people are very, very compatible, will they agree absolutely about what is and is not enjoyable? No. They're going to have some areas where they say, you know, I respect that you like that, but I don't like it. 
Now, materially, our personality is caused by our many bursts in this world and our many impressions called sunscars. We've gone through different lifetimes, we have different experiences, and in our dream state, in darkness, we fashion various personalities in our different lifetimes. So in one lifetime, maybe, you know, I hate peanut butter and jelly, in another lifetime, maybe I like it. Because they had different impressions in different lives. Everybody follow this? Yeah? Maybe I got yelled at in a math class when I was in third grade, and so this life I don't like math. But maybe last life I like math. And this, this part of our opinions and tastes and personality is all external to us, and it's all artificial, and it's all changing. The famous movie star Julia Roberts, who says that she's become a Hindu and she believes in reincarnation, she says, Next life, I want to be somebody quiet in the back of the room. I'm tired of being a big, famous person. And this is exactly what happens. And by the way, if we're dissatisfied with our present material personality and we're thinking, I wish I was quieter, I wish I was more outgoing, I wish I was more courageous, I wish I was more cautious. That brings us to another lifetime <laughs> where we get to try on a different mundane external personality. But if love for Krishna is eternally situated in the, in, with every living being as a soul, we must have some personality in relation to Krishna that is not the result of circumstances. That is not the result of who we're with or what we're doing, or what our experience is, it must be who we are. So in the same book that Rupa Goswami uh, gave this verse that we discussed today, he goes on to talk about all the different ways that a person can experience love for Krishna. Now he talks about five main ways and seven secondary ways, and he talks about some variety of that, but ultimately each living being has their own unique way of exchanging love with Krishna. And you want to know what's really wonderful? In the third canto of the Bhagavatam, Lord Brahma says that the Lord takes a form specifically corresponding to the way that soul wants to love him. So when I love another person or animal in this world, as I was saying, you never get complete compatibility. There's always some frustration. But with Krishna, because he's infinite, he can reciprocate perfectly. Like we read that Krishna married 16,108 queens. Please do not try that. <laughs> he did it all in one day. 16,100 different ceremonies in different places. And it says that each form of the Lord at these weddings was slightly different, corresponding to the specific type of love that that princess had for him. This is also nicely explained uh, if any of you are familiar with the story where Lord Brahma takes away Krishna's friends and calves, and so Krishna expands and takes on the form of all of these. And then when Lord Brahma comes back, 
all these apparent boys and calves appear as the Lord. And each form of the Lord is being worshipped by all living entities. And Sanatana Goswami there says, the Lord has infinite qualities, there's an infinite number of living beings, and each living being is particularly attracted to a certain quality of the Lord. So this is who we are. We are a spiritual being who's full of love for God. And that love for God is specific. That the way that we love God is the definition of our personality. What gives us joy in loving God? What gives us joy in serving God? And that manifests to some extent in our practice here, that some people like to go in the kitchen and cook the Sunday feast, and other people like to weed the garden, and other people like to help with the finances, and other people like to manage the festival, right? We each have our different tastes. But there's also an eternal taste that each of us has. So as we chant Hare Krishna, as we perform the practice of bhakti, it cleans this mirror so we can look and see who I am. And it brings us into the spiritual energy of the Lord, which is light. Any of you familiar with the uh, Gayatri Mantra? The Gayatri Mantra is a meditation like that. That above this darkness, there is the Lord who is effulgent. I meditate on His effulgent light, which then enlivens me and fills me with understanding. So this is our process of awakening, realizing, revealing who we are as eternal persons. And the more that we engage in bhakti yoga, the more we will come to understand who am I as a beginningless individual? What are my tastes? What are the ways in which I love God? What are the ways in which I want to see the Lord and experience Him and reciprocate with Him? And this is the perfection of life. So we want to end early.